it's the fourth day of our spring seven days to Sheen, 31st of August 2016, and we're going to continue looking at the Metta Sutta. Yesterday we finished up um, the Shila or virtue part, uh, sort of foundation or the roots of the tree, and now we move on to the second part, which deals with the actual uh, Metta meditation. Uh, could say this this first part of it is is um, like the the trunk and the branches and, and flowers of the tree and it starts off um, I see we read the whole this whole passage that we're going to look at today because it really is all of a piece wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease whatever living beings there may be whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. So this section starts off with this word wishing. So um, right at the start, it's clear that what we're doing in meta practice is we're um, working with our intentions. And what we're wishing is um, benefit. We're wishing well to whoever is the object of our meta. And this this uh, this section here, following the word wishing, is um, like a script that we could follow to generate and and nurture uh, benevolence. In in meta meditation, where where um, Nurturing healthy wishes, wishes that actually lead to genuine happiness. I mentioned before these these um, four different uh, interrelated aspects of of mind training that we um, need to do. Uh, Alan Wallace mentions these: cognitive, attentional, affective, and cognitive. And uh, in that first talk, I said that meta mainly was to do with uh, the, the middle two of these, attentional balance and affective balance. But really it includes also the cognitive balance because it's to do with what we want. You could say if, you, if you're going to desire something, then desire the well-being of all sentient beings because that will actually lead to, to genuine happiness for all. There's a um, passage in Shantideva where he says, um, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. 
Is there need for a lengthy explanation? Childish beings look out for themselves. Buddhas labor for the good of others. See the difference that divides them. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Um, in, in this, if you look at the Pali for these lines, and, and sometimes they're not a- very accurate translations because they've had to be um, adapted to the, to the rhythm of the chant. Um, so, for instance, in these two lines, um, the same word is, is translated in two different ways, in gladness and in safety in the first line and as at ease in the second line, but they both uh, are derivatives of the word sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha. And uh, usually given definition is a deep condition of well-being, ease and contentment. This is what we we um, we're wishing for for all beings. This is some, this, the sukha is sometimes contrasted with another word, uh, prayer or pleasure, and the one is seen as, as um, uh, unreliable and and not conducive to true happiness. And then this the sukha, meaning something authentic and and um, a fulfilling state of being. If you um, if you look into the the etymology of this word, it's really interesting because it comes from from a word used about a wheel. It literally means good aperture, and its original meaning was a wheel that had a good axle hole in it. And of course, if you if your wheels are uh, have a good axle hole, then your chariot runs smoothly, swiftly, without a lot of of uh, jolting and, and jarring. If, on the other hand, you have an axle hole in your wheel that is is slightly off, then you're in for a bumpy ride. interesting that happiness should be defined in terms of a space something that contains nothing 
difference. In this uh, first line of our couplet here, it says, Wishing in gladness and in safety. The safety part of these two, uh, the word is uh, kimino, and it relates to the word for a, word for a field or a pasture. And at that time, of course, uh, pastures for animals would be have a wall around them to, to protect the livestock from predators. So this word has a sense of, of uh, being a safe place, a refuge. So we're wishing, in this statement, we're wishing that all beings have a place of refuge. You could understand it as, as being um, spiritual refuge, three refuges, but it can also just mean a physical place. I saw in a letter from the Auckland City Mission that they're calculating, I think it was something like 175 plus people sleeping, sleeping rough in central Auckland each night. Imagine what it's like to have no place of refuge, no way to stay dry, if it rains. The city mission is saying the thing they needed most for people was socks because often people's feet, even if they've found somewhere to, to get some shelter, bus shelter or under a bridge or something, often they have constantly wet feet Imagine just what it's like to have no, no sense of being able to close a door behind you. Drop your defences and feel safe. I was on a much more massive scale there are refugees now all over Europe seeking a safe place. And people's responses has been very mixed. Some have got that and many, many more thousands 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands haven't. The sutra, this uh, Metta Sutta itself, is seen as a refuge and a protection. It's known as a, a parita. A parita is a spiritual formula that is, has the power to, to safeguard one's well-being. The Dharani are seen in this way too. So it seems to be able to protect against dangers and misfortunes. A little bit like, as I mentioned before, the 25th chapter of the Lotus Sutra. Is what one um, commentator uh, says about this. The protection of parita works both subjectively and objectively. Subjectively, metta cleanses. It also awakens dormant potentials, resulting in the spiritual transmutation of the personality. Transformed by metta, the mind is no longer haunted by greed, hatred, lust, jealousy and other mind-polluting factors which are one's real enemy and source of misfortune. Objectively, metta as a thought force is capable of affecting any mind anywhere, developed or undeveloped. The radiation of metta can not only calm a person or remove the darts of hate from within him but in some cases can even cure him of severe illness Just to to have faith that that one's one's practice of metta is healing can motivate us to do it with with uh, real energy and sincerity. Love. Love and, and uh, compassion have this power to heal. A little story that illustrates this. And this is from um, How Can I Help by Ram Das and Paul Gorman. I have a friend, a chemotherapy nurse in a children's cancer ward whose job it is to pry for any available vein in an often emaciated arm to give infusions of chemicals 
that sometimes last as long as 12 hours and which are often quite discomforting to the child. He is probably the greatest pain giver the children meet in their stay in hospital. Because he has worked so much with his own pain, his heart is very open. He works with his responsibilities in the hospital as a laying on of hands with love and acceptance. And that's in quotes. There is little in him that causes him to withdraw, that reinforces the painfulness of the experience for the children. He is a warm, open space which encourages them to trust whatever they feel. And it is he whom the children often ask for at the time they are dying. Although he is the main pain giver, he is also the main love giver. Healing doesn't always mean surviving. This is something that um, Stephen Devine pointed out in his book on death and dying. When when we're dying, we we are often we 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 open up to others' love in a way that we couldn't before. And a healing can take place. Even as we die. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. Whatever, li- uh, whatever living beings there may be. The um, this living, um, actually in the original, is um, pana bhuta, breathing beings. This prana is, is related to the Sanskrit word prana for the life breath. So it's saying anything that has a life breath. We could say anything that exchanges gases or nutrients. We could include here not just um, mammals and birds and reptiles and fish but also trees and plants mountains rivers, lakes, seas our atmosphere
So here in this in this passage, we get we're given this um, overall statement at the start: "May all beings be at ease." And then the following lines are really just ways of illustrating what all means. All breathing things, whether they're weak or strong, omitting none. Again, looking into the original text, weak or strong, actually in the, in the Pali, is moving and stable. And it's, it's pointing at states of mind more than anything else. If one is, if one is moving, one's considered to be um, vulnerable, agitated. Agitated by cravings and aversions, and and so summing up, this becomes weak in the in the translation, and then unstable, meaning grounded, tranquil, solid. You could say at rest, not easily um, uh, overturned or upset. So we can understand we understand these in quite a broad way to to generate meta for the weak and the strong people weakened by illness, mental or physical, by addictions of one kind or another, just by not seeing things clearly by, by delusive thinking. But also sending matter towards the strong, those who seem not so much in need of our help. <coughs> Often when we perceive somebody as being strong, we may there may be some resentment there, even even the desire to bring them down in some kind of way, at least in our estimation, if not in a more more concrete way. And this is where uh, mudita, the practice of sympathetic joy, comes in, which is another aspect of metta, where we Rejoice in others' strengths, virtues, and good fortune. The point being made again and again here in this passage is to omit nobody, to leave no one out. No one. Even tyrants and the henchmen are deserving of our loving kindness, our compassion, especially our compassion. There's an extraordinary film 
I don't remember its name now, um, made about the uh, slaughters in Indonesia in the 1960s. Um, many, many um, hundreds of people labelled as communists and killed, executed, mass killings. And this film um, follows um, the lives of several of the people who, who were among those who killed many hundreds, garroted mostly with wire. And by the end of the film, due to the, the skill of the director, you're able to actually feel compassion for these men who've never been punished, except, of course, punished day by day by their memories of what happened. Missing none, even uh, demagogues, narcissists like Donald Trump. Of course, we may want to keep somebody like Donald Trump in quarantine. We view him as having a kind of infectious disease, it needs treatment, and uh, certainly. It would be great if we could avoid him infecting others with his disease. That would be a, f um, a form of actually of kindness with anybody who's who's poisonous, because of course they're just going to reap the the. Um, Results of their infecting others with their uh, incitements to hatred and prejudice. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small. So here we just get a whole range of different words referring really to physical size. The, the, the original is literally long, big, middle, short, very small. The last one um, is related to the word for an atom. So going right down to the microscopic here. From the very large to the very small. So again, trying to get us to think about including everybody in terms of their size. Much cruelty is uh, meted out based on people's physical appearance. And I was looking first at this line, immediately thought of school and the way in which uh, the shortest boy in the class or the tallest for that matter would be singled out I heard somebody say quite recently I was, I was the shortest in my class for years and 
was he said he was given a nickname and then singled out in all kinds of different ways. Or if you're the fattest in the class or the plainest girl or just different. It could be that you, you speak differently from others or the colour of your skin is different. And this, this cruelty can really mark people damage them it's something they have to work on for years after to resolve children and, and the immature of all ages just see the external appearance they don't sense soul, the, the subjectivity they see a thing and they point at it and jeer of course it's a way of externalising one's fear to, to ridicule and, and be cruel to somebody and have put all the vulnerability out there where we, we think it, it doesn't hurt us. The next line, the seen and the unseen. The commentators... Um, see this line is referring to uh, encompassing beings in all worlds so not just um, this human realm of ours but all the six realms of unenlightened existence the human, the animal, fighting demons, hungry ghosts, hell beings, even gods Buddhism also teaches a, a multiverse so I could say just all the humans and all these other kinds of beings in all universes vast we can take it as we go on a vast vast scale you could say from the most uh, um, abject being to the most exalted even even the gods come in here because they uh, they eventually will lose their um, grip in their in their heavenly realms and fall back into lower realms, and this is very painful. So we can feel compassion for them. The seen and the unseen can we can also um, bring in here um, things that are microscopic, microscopic organisms, 
or things which are living living uh, systems or entities but which aren't so easy to see like an ecosystem or um, a language culture these are also things that need our love and care even though they're not so easy to see we could include in here also all that we unsee because we unsee things all the time people of other races we see them but we don't see them they don't have quite the same always the same weight as we do as people like us have I heard a Maori leader talking about the crisis um, of uh, suicides by young male Maori men and he would ask the question if the suicide rate was as high among Pākehā as it is among Māori would there be more resources for addressing the problem? In the United States African Americans are uh, not seen the issue that's live at the moment is, is and this has been going on for uh, decades and decades but police keep shooting young black men and don't suffer any consequences for it they don't get prosecuted investigated this has given rise to the Black Lives Matter movement I had a kind of a little um, realization um, about how I had not seen African Americans in the same way as I saw others after watching The Wire. Very insightful series of, of uh, uh, shows, I think it's four or five looking at different aspects of life in Baltimore and most of the characters in the series are African American and after I had seen this and went back on one of my visits to Rochester I realised I was looking at, at African Americans that I met in the airport or the street or anything like that wherever it should be in a different way they had they had taken on a kind of interiority that I, they hadn't had for me before and of course this is due to the whole um, how they're presented in the media and um, or not 
but it was striking. Whole parts of our reality that we that we don't see, that we that are two-dimensional when they have many dimensions. We also unsee ourselves and the people closest to us. We often don't fully comprehend that the people we see every day are worthy of our love and respect and that we are. We don't see our own true nature and because of familiarity we often don't see it in our husbands and wives and sometimes even our children. It's a little story from the um, Hasidic traditions, Jewish, Jewish spirituality about seeing and it's about a monastery um, somewhere in Europe that had fallen on hard times it once had been part of a great order but as a result of um, monastic anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th centuries and then the rise of secularism in the 19th all its branch houses were lost and it had to become decimated to the extent that there were now only five monks living in the decaying convent the abbot and four others all over 70 in age and these monks felt that it was their order was dying the community was dying In the deep woods surrounding the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. Through their many years of prayer and contemplation, the old monks had become a bit psychic, so they could always sense when the rabbi was in his hermitage. The rabbi is in the woods. The rabbi is in the woods again, they would whisper to each other. As he agonised over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot at one such time to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer any advice that might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot at his hut. But when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he exclaimed. The spirit has gone out of the people. It is the same in my town. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. 
Then they read parts of the Torah and quietly spoke of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said. But I have still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me, no piece of advice you can give me that would help me save my dying order? No, I'm sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that, is that the Messiah is one of you. And of course in, in, um, in Jewish um, tradition, the Messiah hasn't come yet. It's still waiting to be saved. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, Well, what did the rabbi say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just read and read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic, was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what he meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us? Could he possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Yes, if he meant anyone, it is probably Father Abbot. He has been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. Certainly he could have not meant Brother Eldred. Eldred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he is a thorn in people's sides, when you look back on it, Eldred is virtually always right, often very right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Eldred, but surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive, a real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet, supposing he did. Suppose I am the Messiah. Oh God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one among them might be the Messiah and on the off, off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. 
Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that the people still occasionally came to visit the monastery to picnic on its tiny lawn, to wander among some of its paths, even now and then to go into the dilapidated chapel to meditate. As they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary love and respect that now began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. Hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently to picnic, to play, to pray. They even began to bring their friends to show them this special place, and their friends brought their friends. Then it happened that some younger men who had come to visit the monastery started to talk more and more with the old monks. After a while, one asked if he could join them, then another and another. So within a few years, the monastery had once again become a thriving order, and thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant centre of light and spirituality in the realm. What was the rabbi saying when he said, The Messiah is one of you? Did he really believe it? And if he did, in what sense? What a real gift to these monks because it got them to look again. This is actually the meaning of the word respect to re inspect. They saw each other afresh. <coughs> and which one was the Messiah? This word Messiah um, means the, literally the anointed one. It's the same meaning of the word Christ. Was one of the monks some kind of Christ? What is it that, that saves us? Can you save someone else? happens if we start to treat everyone we meet as Christ or as Buddha? to our sutra those living near and far away those born and to be born may all beings be at ease this line 
these two lines about living near and far away and those born and to be born are particularly pertinent for us now in the midst of the climate crisis. Things we do here have their effects in distant polar regions on small atolls in the, in the Pacific. Far away is not so far anymore. These are, these are concepts we have about things which are limiting. The same with um, the next line in terms of the climate crisis. Those born and to be born. To, to extend our love to all future generations is to be deeply concerned about the effect of our actions now on those who are not yet born. The, the um, results of, of damage we're doing now will be reaped by future generations. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.